this morning, verses 34 to 40. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew 22. If you don't, you can pull a Bible out of the seat back in front of you and open to page 699, I believe is where you'll find that. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Today we continue the theme that uh, Steve Morrow started us on last week, the theme of love. And to get our minds back into the theme, I thought I'd start with some Black Eyed Peas. For those of you who don't know, the Black Eyed Peas are a hip-hop group. And some of their songs are really terrible, but they have some really great songs, too. And I love their song, particularly, Where is the Love? It really speaks to the world we live in today. Listen to their words. I feel the weight of the world on my shoulder. As I'm getting older, y'all, things get colder. Most of us only care about money-making. Selfishness got us following our wrong direction. Yo, whatever happened to the values of humanity? Whatever happened to the fairness and equality? Instead of spreading love, we're spreading animosity. Lack of understanding leading lives away from unity. That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling under. That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling down. There's no wonder why sometimes I'm feeling under. Got to keep my faith alive till love is found. Now ask yourself, where is the love? Where is the love? Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. Because people got me, got me questioning, where is the love? You resonate with those words like I do? Where is the love? Well, as followers of Christ, we of all people have an answer to give. And that's what today's passage tells us. Today's text is a very familiar one. In it, Jesus tells us what the greatest two commandments are. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so important and central is Jesus' teaching here that it echoes down through the rest of the New Testament. In the New Testament, we get the overriding message that love is the most important thing of all. Jesus, our Lord, said it. What we don't often recognize, though, is the context in which Jesus said it. A context which proves that it can be religious people, first of all, who are in danger of forgetting about love. So I want to start this morning by putting these commands which Jesus spoke back into their original context. The place was the temple in Jerusalem. The time was late in Jesus' ministry, just a day or two before he was handed over to be crucified. If you flip from our passage in Matthew 22 back a page, you'll see that Jesus has just cleansed the temple a few days before, and then he cursed a fig tree. And in those acts, he prophetically signified that God's judgment was coming upon the temple and the religious establishment which functioned in and around it. Then if you flip ahead a page or two, you see that Jesus is just about to pronounce woes on Jerusalem and her leaders and to predict the utter destruction of of the temple and of the city. In other words, things are really heating up at this point in the story. Our passage itself is the third of four exchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They are trying to trap him in some sly way so as to have grounds to arrest him, but in each exchange, Jesus' comeback to them shows them up. 
And look how our passage begins. Literally, the text says in 22:34, the Pharisees gathered together. Gathered together. This is the exact language that we find back in a famous psalm, a psalm which the New Testament applies to Jesus and to the opposition that he faces from kings and rulers. Psalm 2, listen. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, his Christ, his Messiah. I think this is a a further allusion on Mark's part to the conflict that's brewing between the religious rulers and Jesus, God's king. Jesus has foretold those leaders' judgment and destruction, and, and they are seeking to trap him, to destroy him. In other words, there's not a lot of love going on. All right, let's notice one more thing about the context of Jesus' teaching on love. And that is that today's passage, the third exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders, is to be read closely together with the fourth exchange that follows it. Christians from the early church down through Calvin and the Reformers and on into our present day have recognized this. Why read them together? Well, two reasons. First, both begin with the Pharisees gathered together against Jesus. That phrase occurs again in verse 41, introducing the fourth exchange. And second, the third exchange flows right into the fourth exchange with no response by anyone. If you go back to the first question that they asked Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar, it ends with the Pharisees' response, they're amazed at Jesus' answer. Then after the second question about marriage at the resurrection, we have the crowd's response. They're astonished at Jesus' answer. But after the third exchange, there's no response by anyone until after the fourth exchange when we read that no one could say a word in reply and no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Matthew presents the third exchange about the greatest command, love, together with the fourth exchange about who the Messiah is. All right, well, what do we make of these observations about context? What's the point? Well, let me pull it together with two simple statements. First, it's the king, the Messiah, who gives us the command to love God and to love our neighbor. I think the New Testament writer James is picking up on this. In James 2.8, he calls the command to love our neighbor the royal law. The royal law. It's the law of the king, the law of the Messiah. Second statement. Jesus' kingly rule and his command to love was coming into direct conflict with the religion of his day. Matthew in the way he tells this story, is stretching out a tension for us between two poles. Jesus' rule of love on the one hand and loveless religion on the other hand. These two are coming into conflict, their intention. Now don't miss this. King Jesus is about to dramatically live out this love for God and this love for neighbor neighbor by giving his life on the cross. 
While ironically, the religious leaders, though they certainly agree with Jesus in theory that, that loving God and loving neighbor are most important, yet nevertheless, they're about to kill God and their neighbor by having Jesus nailed to the cross. How can religion go so far astray? Matthew is warning us that when religious people lose their love, they come into direct conflict with the king himself who came to establish a kingdom of love. I don't know about you, but I find this very convicting. Where is the love? It's easy to lose the love, isn't it? Billy Graham describes loveless religion well. He, he said, we hurt people by being too busy, too busy to notice their needs, too busy to drop that note of comfort or encouragement or assurance of love, too busy to listen when someone needs to talk, too busy to care. By contrast, Roy Hattersley, a columnist, describes very well the love Jesus came to bring. During the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, he observed the Salvation Army leading several other faith-based groups in responding to the needs. And I know some of you were there showing God's love as well. Well, he was moved, um, Hattersley was, but... Um, by what he saw, but being an atheist himself, he laments in an article he was writing for the UK Guardian, and he laments, it ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. <laughs> he says, notable by their absence there in New Orleans were teams from rationalist societies and free thinkers clubs and atheist associations, the sort of people who scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity. He also reflects in the article that enlightened people like him don't believe that behaviors like drug use or male prostitution are sins against any God. And yet he asks, who are those most willing to change the fetid bandages and, and replace the sodden sleeping bags? Christians. The only possible conclusion, he concludes, is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that, while they do not condition the attitudes of all believers, influence enough of them to make Christians morally superior to atheists like me. It's interesting that um, Hattersley can see clearly that love does not, in his words, condition the attitudes of all believers. Some believers are just religious, while others actually love. So which are you? Which am I? What would your neighbor say? Your coworkers? Your family? What kind of Christian are you? Are you a religious believer? Or are you a believer marked by love? As far as Jesus is concerned, according to our passage, it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus came to bring God's kingdom on earth, a, a God revolution, a new world order. Out with the temple, said Jesus, out with the, the complex religious rules and rule makers and in with love. So let's linger for a while on what the king is commanding us in these royal words in Matthew 22, these words about love. I want to make five observations about King Jesus' commands about love. First, ready? 
we can't manufacture the kind of love Jesus is calling us to in our own hearts. We've already alluded to that this morning. Rather, this kind of love is our response to God's far greater love for us. Notice Jesus' first command. Love the Lord your God. Not love God, but love your God. That little word, your, makes all the difference. He's our God. And why is he ours? Because he has already loved us. He found us in our lovelessness and and he forgave us and he called us to be his own. How does John put it in the letter of 1 John? We love because God first loved us. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you want to have more love in your heart, spend time getting to know again just how much God loves you. Just about every night I, um, when I put our kids to bed, I, I pray for them and I pray that they would always trust Jesus and I pray that they would love God and that they would love other people. But I also always add that they would know more and more how much God loves them. Because unless they have a deep sense of God's love for them, they aren't going to grow into into their love for God and for others. So N.T. Wright comments, that's when these commandments begin to come into their own. When they're seen not as orders to be obeyed in our own strength, but as invitations and promises to a new way of life. And it's God who leads us into this new way of life by first showering his love on us. Second observation. The love that that Jesus calls us to is a love which comes to dominate and to permeate our whole being. Love the Lord your God, he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. William Barclay describes this well. He says it's a total love, a love which dominates our emotions, a love which directs our thoughts, and a love which is the dynamic of our actions. All religion starts with the love which is a total commitment of life to God. Third observation. This love is as much a public action as it is a private emotion. It was John Perkins who first helped me to see this. John Perkins is an African-American leader. I believe he was a mentor of Chris Rice, who wrote that article earlier. He uh, has had a big influence in racial reconciliation and urban missions and inner city development. And in one of his books, Perkins made the point that in the Bible, love is not so much a warm emotion between two people who who, uh, care about each other as it is the way we treat people economically, socially, and politically. And his statement caught me up short when I read it, read it, and I didn't want to believe it. I I was a, a psychology major, and I was passionate about people learning to love those close to them more tenderly and intimately. But the more I read the Bible, the more I came to see that Perkins is downright right. It's popular to complain that that Hollywood has steered us wrong about what love is. And they sure have. Love is not first and foremost a feeling. 
It's not first and foremost an intimacy shared between two close people. Love is first and foremost a commitment and an action. Are feelings important? Sure they are. But they're not the root. They're rather the fruit. Popular culture has it wrong. Popular culture teaches us that love begins as feelings, as if feelings are the root. And then those feelings may inspire us to act lovingly, the fruit. But real love is just the opposite. The decision, the the commitment to act in love is the root. And feelings eventually come along. They, they, They come along in their time, in their season, not all the time. But those are the, the, the fruit. The feelings are the fruit. So what is love? Well, theologian J.I. Packard describes it simply as the purpose of making the loved one great. The purpose of making the loved one great. Tim Kimmel, who writes about marriage and family, gives this definition, which is also really good. Love is the commitment of my will to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost to me. The commitment of my will to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost to me. The Apostle John, though, put it best. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And then in the same breath, he gives an example of what this looks like. If any of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Love is not only a private emotion, but just as much it's a public action. I'm not going to take time to to do it now, but if you want further proof of this, just go back and look up the old two Testament commands or two Old Testament commands that Jesus is quoting here. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.5, love God, and Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor. If you read those commands in context, you'll see very clearly that loving God is more than an emotion when we sing inspiring worship songs. Rather, loving God involves obeying him, and serving him only, and not following after other gods. And loving our neighbor means, in Leviticus, not stealing, not lying, not perverting justice, not spreading slander, etc. All public as well as private actions. Love, in other words, is about labor conditions and social justice. It's about an end to discrimination, It's about responsible journalism, as well as it is about not gossiping or slandering about your friends, uh, forgiving, tender affection, and of course, gushy valentines on Valentine's Day. (laughs) The king has come, King Jesus, and his new kingdom intends to transform every area of life from romantic relationships and family relationships to friendships and working relationships to politics and policing and economics and international trade. In Jesus' kingdom, it all gets shaped 
and molded by the ethic of love. Fourth observation. Love for God and love for our neighbor are closely linked. Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is to love God. Then he says the second is like it. And that little phrase is like it means just as important as it. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner observes the first is first and the second is second. But the second is equally as important as the first. The Apostle John understood that love for God and love for neighbor are closely linked. And in 1 John 4, he writes, if we say we love God, yet we hate a brother or sister, <coughs> excuse me, we are liars. He has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother and sister. Evidently, that's how John understood what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 22. He who or whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister. How do we show our love for God? Well, a major way is by loving our neighbor. Jesus is brilliant in tying together love for God and love for neighbor. Because if we strive to love our neighbor without nurturing a deep love for God, we easily become what? Dry, cynical, strident activists. But if we try to love God without loving our neighbor, what do we become? Pie-in-the-sky religious hypocrites. And God knows the world already has far too many of both of those. What this world needs and what Jesus is, is unleashing into this world as agents of his kingdom are humble, grateful people deeply touched by God's love for them who are growing to fervently and worshipfully know God and, and walk exclusively in his ways and who express that growing love for God by giving away their love in, to bring goodness and to bring blessing to others. Fifth observation then. The twin commands of love are the glasses with which we read all of Scripture. Jesus says all of the law and the prophets depend, literally, that they hang on these two commands. Every other command gains its meaning and its authority from these two commands to love. Take away the command to love, and all the other commands fall to the ground. They become meaningless. They become worthless. This means that to understand God's will as reflected in his word, as revealed in his law and his prophets, we are going to have to read all of that after putting on the lenses of love. We won't understand anything about the life that God calls us to live until we discern the motive of, motive of love that permeates all of it. Without the glasses of love, we read scripture and we become Pharisees believing the right things, faithful in our religion, but completely missing God's kingdom. And if we as Christians don't learn to love, we become part of the problem, not part of Jesus' solution. Could that be one of the reasons that evangelicals have developed a bad name in America today? 
Well, we live in a world which is in rebellion against love. Oh, yeah, it sings about love. It talks about love. It's preoccupied with making love. But it hasn't the foggiest idea what love is. Yeah, there are, there are individuals inside and outside of the church who are, who are learning to love one another. But the culture as a whole, in fact, is in pitched rebellion against love. Way back in 1845, the social reformer Benjamin Disraeli observed that in great cities, men are brought together by a desire of gain. They're not in a state of cooperation, but of isolation as to the making of fortunes. And for all the rest, they are careless about neighbors. Christianity teaches us to love our neighbor as ourself. Modern society acknowledges no neighbor. Bill Clinton put it more succinctly recently, it's the economy, stupid. Money and what money can buy are what constantly steal the headlines. When was the last time you saw a headline about the crisis of lovelessness in our country? But that is the real crisis. And we Christians today living in the 21st century are being deeply influenced by our culture. Jesus came as king. And as he set about to establish God's kingdom of love, he came into conflict with the religion of his day. And so it still is today. So which is it going to be for us at CBC? Which will have our first allegiance? Religion or love? Let me end with a parable. And my wife came across this online. A lady is telling the story of the demise of potlucks at the church that she attends. As a younger adult, she writes, our potlucks were lots of people happily sharing and coming together to enjoy our time in fellowship. My husband would often bring in the handmade ice cream maker of our family and have squirmy kids turn the crank. There was always food left over to share with the shut-ins. The older ladies would always be competing in a good way to outdo other ladies making the best fried chicken or pot roast or chocolate cake. About 10 years ago, though, things started to change. It was not the economy. The economy was good then. It was an attitude shift. I noted that more and more people came with a rather stingy plate of cookies. As the older ladies aged and a new set of older ladies took their places, the attitude of many in this new older group was, I did all that cooking stuff when I was younger. I don't have a big family now, so why should I bring extra? The younger families didn't seem to bring enough food to feed their brood either. They seemed to be looking forward to eating off the bounty of others. Well, the rule makers tried to fix the situation. You bring meats, make sure you bring 10 servings. You bring a salad and it better be big. You're in charge of cleanup, you will be serving. So instead of an atmosphere of surprise, will we get 20 kinds of desserts and no veggies, the kids all hope and pray? <laughs> will uh, Martha make her fabulous coconut cake and can I get a piece before my wife catches me? The slightly chubby hubby anticipates. Do I have enough? Maybe I should add some more brownies, the moms all used to think. Instead of that, we get... How much meat can I get away with bringing? It sure is pricey. 
Oh, I'll just grab a bag of bagels and call it the bread and salad I signed up for. No one will notice. As she drags her two little ones and two teen boys into the room. And I sure hope they bring enough food. It was embarrassing last week when we had that famous missionary here and we didn't have enough food to feed everyone. They have to know I'm too busy with committee X or ministry Y to make anything. And so sadly, she concludes, it got so bad that finally they stopped having potlucks altogether. Now, whether a church has potlucks or not is not really the point. But I thought this served as a good parable of what happens to our life as a community when selfishness and busyness crowd out love. As a result, there's a famine. A famine of love a famine of fellowship, a famine of joy and celebration. All that we're left with is loveless religion. And we have nothing finally to offer to the world. Jesus, our king, came to show the world a different way. To inaugurate a new kingdom, a new reality for the world. Will we at CBC, follow our king in love or will we side with the opposition? Where is the love? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for showing us what love is. Though we were not looking for you, you came looking for us And before we loved you, you gave up your life so that you could be reconciled to us and we could have a relationship with you, that we could have all the failures to love that we've racked up, uh, that we could have that washed away and that we could start anew, embraced by you and given a new beginning. And God, thank you um, for this church body and thank you that we do love. And I pray that our love would abound more and more. Our love for you, our love for our neighbors, our love for our enemies. That we would be a people um, who are truly people of the King. Who are about the business of the wonderful new kingdom that you are establishing that's breaking into history around us and around this world as your people learn not only that they are loved, but as they learn to love others. We pray this and we long for this in Jesus' name. Amen.